So even though they're going to a, a larger processing facility, they're going to be marketed under a brand that you might be familiar with seeing in the grocery store. That's coming from ranches, family ranches like ours. This is the Real Food Real People podcast. From growing up on a farm in Western Washington to working next door to the White House, then back to Seattle, and now farming in Eastern Washington, our guest this week has done so many things and has so much cool professional background, but she also has a really cool personal story. Bridget Kuhn, she and her husband and their family raise beef on a ranch in Benj, Washington. And as she says on her website, you're probably going to have to Google where exactly that is. She shares how she got to know her husband, how she ended up in this career in politics, and how that eventually led her back to her farming roots. And we also get into some of the sticky issues, too, about food and about beef and the controversy. You're really going to love this one. She's a lot of fun to hear from and hear her stories. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this is the Real Food, Real People podcast, documenting my journeys across Washington State to get to know the real farmers and ranchers. And this week, we talk with Bridget Kuhn on her ranch in Benj, Washington. raise beef out here um it's this really dry rocky scab land and so about the only thing you can grow on it is beef and um we also raise hay for premium and export market and then of course those two commodities work together in our on our farm and ranch where we can feed hay throughout the winter so some of your hay is for your cows yes. and the rest you sell to primarily we have, so we have basically two enterprises or, right. you know, two parts of our family farm with the hay and ranch with the cattle. So how does that work? How do you determine like which land you do hay on and which you do cattle on? So like I said, most of this is we're in the channeled scab lands here. It was carved out a million years ago in the Missoula floods. And uh, it's just a lot of rock. You can't, grow anything you can't till it you can't farm Mm. it so uh cows are about the only thing that can come from it that turns into food um there's still quite a bit of grass and stuff though around the rocks right yes so so it's just what we'd call rangeland um and cattle are really good at taking you know what what's growing out here and we just do our part to manage the land determine how many head of cattle can you know graze a a pasture Mm -hmm. and keep the pasture healthy for us to be able to do this year decade generation after generation that's kind of our that's our job so how how do you how do you tell like how how do you know how many cows to put on a field cattle i guess i should say yes uh i grew up around dairy so all the cows all your cows all the cattle all the cattle were cows yeah. Yes. Um, but you have boys and girls. Yes, we do. So we mostly have, we are a, what what's considered a cow-calf operation or okay. a cow-calf ranch. And so what we do is we have a herd of mother cows and then we have a little squad of bulls and mm-hmm. the cow, the cows are bred each year to produce a calf each year. And then the calves stay here for about a year, nursing their mothers, 
you know, eventually wean, eventually weaning, but grazing on this grass. And then um, those go on to finish at a feed yard before they're ready for slaughter. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just really this continuous cycle year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, if we're doing it well. And then each year, it varies how much, um, how many cattle we can run on a given pasture based on how much moisture mm. we've had based on our decisions the year before and whether or not, you know, we were kind of on the money with moisture and, and that equation. So um, I'm so, learning a lot still. What, what happens if you have too many cattle on a certain chunk of land? Oh my gosh, this work gets so complicated because uh, some of the better practices in rangeland management are mm -hmm. actually, if you can put in the time and effort to create smaller paddocks within a pasture and actually what we'd call intensively graze these cattle. Um, and they come in and they do this really great work by, you know, um, essentially controlling, they control the weed population. They um, basically graze just the right amount of grass to where it's left to where it can regrow. And then we move them on to another fresh pasture and only rotate them back to that pasture. So it's maybe less about the total number, number of animals and more about those decisions on timing and moving animals and giving the pasture um, rest that it needs to come back before you bring cattle back onto it. Because basically, for, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you have too many cattle on a certain amount of land for too long and they eat it down too far, you'll basically kill all that grass and stuff. That it just won't come back to the level that you want it to. Yeah. You're like, oh, you're overworking it. So, um, yeah. So you got, that's what you're managing. For. That's you're, you're really, um, you're managing grass. And then of course we have a lot of, you know, we have our animal health and we have our decision making as far as how many, how many cows we decide to, yeah. to, to be here. Um, you know, genetics, you know, the, deciding what type of bulls we're breeding um, to our cows. But the basic job on our level of raising beef is managing land so we can grow cattle on it. Now, that uh, the cattle are eating this grass on scab land. I saw it driving in, like, there's all rocks everywhere. So, like you said, you can't farm it. You couldn't go in there and run a cultivator and, you know, plant whatever crop. So is that grass just the grass that's always been there? Or do you kind of like put seed out there or like? Uh, so most of the rangeland isn't seeded, mm -hmm. but then we have some areas where we can come in and do some supplemental seeding. Um, I know in the past before I was here, my father-in-law has worked with WSU on mm -hmm. test plots of different types of native grasses that could be seeded or could be, mm -hmm. um, you know, managed out here to to benefit the range and benefit cattle so um it it's a cool time to be doing this because we have a, a lot of tradition and a lot of knowledge from generations and generations of doing this but then we also have some really cool research from the university level um, and some collaboration we can do there to keep doing what we do better mm. um, and that's kind of the spot that we try to try well, to live in because it's a whole soil health thing right yes and then like even climate change related yes. as far as like so, carbon sequestration <clears throat> and all that kind of stuff that these practices yeah, accomplish, right? Like cows are really cool in that regard. Um, and I think it's that overlooked, they're that overlooked piece of our food system that, um, you know, it's pretty trendy to just sort of blame everything from climate change um, to other environmental problems on cattle. But, um, really what we're able to do with cattle in the U.S. is take ground that could not be used for food production and cattle use it, but 
I don't know. If, I mean, luckily you didn't hit a deer on your way here, <laughs> but we have a really. I know he- my car looks like it. <laughs> healthy mule deer population, pheasants, quail. Uh, you know, you yeah. name it. Like every everything you can think of as far as um, you know other wildlife. So it's any any ground, any land that cattle are using. It's really a multiple use. Mm-hmm. proposition well because a lot of people say well you know cattle are so inefficient uh, because they use all this land to grow the feed for them to eat to turn into beef that we eat but i realized as i was driving here after miles and miles of this ground that i saw was loaded with these monster boulders and ravines and just all kinds of rock like you couldn't go out there and grow people food no no that that's definitely a myth where cattle compete for the land we need to grow other food for people. It's just a myth because when you actually add up the acreage of, you know, cattle on range, it's not competing. Um, Mm. It's actually just adding to the party. Yeah. Really cool stuff. And and I've been learning more about the whole soil health thing too. So it was cool to hear you explain this whole like intensive grazing thing, because I had heard about that. And at first I'm like, what, like, how does that actually improve soil health? And then, and I read some books kind of explaining the science of what happens with like a grass plant and when it gets pulled on by a cow, which is kind of like the what bovines, which were historically like bison across the plains here. Yep. Ruminant animals. That was kind of the same thing that they did on these rangelands, right? Yeah. I time mean, immemorial. It's just, it is, I mean, as far as this land, highest, best use for sure is running cattle on it. And then it's up to people like us to make decisions that make it um, actually feasible as far as environmentally. And then we have to make it somewhat profitable in order to continue to do what we do here. Um, And so uh, when we talk about sustainability, (laughs) uh, but I mean, the, the definition to, I know like the cattle industry, you know, we really think of it in that, you know, kind of that way where we need to have environmental sustainability just because it's natural resources based and we're the first ones to notice if that natural resource starts to disappear starts to degrade and then um you know uh, taking care of the animals animal welfare we have to have healthy animals otherwise it does not turn into the product that we need it to and then um it has to be sustainable economically for us back to the food question then what makes great beef you know i love an excellent steak. I recently did a London broil and I was like, whoa, this is really different flavor than my sirloin that I usually like to grill and, you know, just different things. I love beef. It's, it's, there's a lot of flavor going on there. There's a lot of protein. My body likes it. I know a lot of people, you know, for a long time, red meat was like this terrible thing, but I'm more like, I'm not keto, but like I need my protein and I need to stay away from my carbs. What does it take on your end to create that? Yeah, a lot of people these days are on the protein train and yeah. for good reason because they can just kind of see um, it's a food that when you eat it, I mean, it really does, you feel good. You feel like you, it really helps you. Um, we know scientifically it helps as far as um, maintaining, especially at, at our age. <laughs> Yeah. When you get to your mid thirties or later, wait, are you calling me old? I don't know. I don't know how old you are, uh, but I know for myself uh, and some of the research we know is that 
you know, as soon as we get to a certain age level, if we don't do things to maintain or grow muscle mass, we start losing it and eating an adequate amount of protein is really important to that. Um, So as far as beef goes, I mean, it's kind of whatever your preference is, but in the US and on an operation like ours, we are really focused on hitting that prime or choice grade bullseye, which is uh, indicated, the grade is determined by the amount of intramuscular fat or marbling that ends up the flavor inside yeah, those steaks yeah. you were just talking Not about. Not the big chunks of fat around the edges. It's the nope. stuff that's yeah. in the... Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, what, what someone who's enjoying a steak thinks about as far as quality is similar to what I would as mm-hmm. I'm enjoying a steak. But from the people who are actually raising it, it also, again, has to hit those other markers where the cows that we have here need to be bred to actually perform or be healthy here and raise calves each year. And that's what helps us be sustainable in our business. And then those have calves that end up having those great beef traits, as we'd mm. call it, where um, they're just, they're uh, healthy, they gain weight well and stay healthy while doing it. And then they end up with, you know, all kinds of delicious buttery marbling stop you're making me hungry (laughs) but like if you guys didn't like let's say you manage really poorly hypothetically would at the end of the day i be able to taste that in the beef like yeah this isn't as good it's it's not so much what you would taste at the end of the day as it is um you know if it wasn't an efficient process to get that 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 animal into the final stage of being food um you kind of just end up with a product that is really useful. There's actually really not any unsafe. Once you get to that level where an animal's, you know, ready for slaughter and it's slaughtered and they, and it goes through the process when it's graded, then it's determined where it goes. Right. So, I mean, we can all enjoy a five guys hamburger too. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all enjoy sort of beef in different contexts. So if you don't do like this fantastic job with breeding and feeding and finishing and, and getting to that prime or choice grade, not the end of the world for the person eating because that's, that product ends up in know, carne asada. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what it, yeah. there's, there's so many different ways that beef ends up in kind of our food world that, you know, it's kind of all good. This is going to be one of those inter- one of these interviews where I just end up really hungry at the end of it. You're staring at the yeah. taco soup right now. Uh, I yeah. You just stared at it. Yeah, totally. It's pretty good. I, I, I'm, gonna I'm just going to forget about that because I don't want to eat here on the microphone while we're conversing. You're going to have that, some. That just doesn't sound good to those listening to the podcast. It's kind of gross. Yeah, exactly. So I'll eat later. Uh, <laughs> but... It, you mentioned, oh, you know, getting like a Five Guys burger. There's so many different places you can be get beef. All the way from Mickey D's to fancy fine dining. How here in Washington, you know, my big focus is I want to get food that's grown here in Washington, if at all possible. I'm not like mega strict about it, but when it's possible and doable, I want to do that. How can people do that with beef? How do they know it's say from Washington or if they don't know that for sure that it's at least from the U S sure. So, um, 
there's a few different ways. Like I said, just, just like there's as many uh, varieties of beef that end up um, on the dinner plate, there's different ways that people can go about sourcing their beef and making those choices. So the most direct way to you know, know that your beef is coming from a local rancher is to find one that sells directly to the mm. public. Are more and more doing that? Um, so interesting you say that. Um, there is a lot of indication as far as like search traffic online um, and, um, you know, local butcher shops that do this kind of uh, slaughter uh, are getting booked out months, if yeah. not into next year. So definitely, I think we've seen people now in this COVID-19 context going into the grocery store and seeing space in the meat case mm -hmm. at given retail or pick whatever retail you go to. And there's some space there and Americans are not used to seeing well with that panic that buying uh, with that panic buying like a couple months ago i know i'd never seen empty shelves of any kind in a grocery store like where they're legitimately out of food yeah i think most anybody in the u.s who, who has grown up here and always lived here has never ever seen that until now so that's a big game changer but from people I talked to, they were already kind of moving in the direction of, hey, can we like just sell it right from the ranch one way or the other? Like, is there like an Amazon for beef, you know? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of cool things taking place in this space and watching consumers link up with producers. But keep in mind, um, so for example, the beef that is raised right out here on this ranch goes to uh, typically a feed yard in Othello. Mm -hmm. um, we either retain ownership there where we pay the feeder um, by the rate of gain or the you know days on feed, um, but we retain the ownership. And then um, we are paid when those animals are ready and they go down to the packing plant. So even though they're going to a, a larger processing facility, they're going to be marketed under a brand that you might be familiar with seeing in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or generically into restaurants where you're not seeing a brand that's coming from ranches, family ranches like ours. Mm. And I think people, maybe the impression at this day and age, because we have this big efficient food supply, typically other than right now, you can go into a Walmart, <laughs> you can go to a Fred Meyer, you can yeah. go into a Safeway and you just have like your pick of every cut of beef right. you All could ever time. imagine. Um, and the only decision is how, you know, how much do I want to spend on it? And do I go for the cheaper cut exactly, or not? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we're used to all these choices, right? Yeah. And so then um, for an outfit like ours, we're not really close to consumers. If you noticed, there wasn't, mm -hmm. did you pass a lot of people? Anyway? No. In fact, I didn't see anybody for like a half hour before I got yeah. So other than <laughs> other than like my persuasion to be, I work in the digital space and I find it really yeah. fascinating, some of the digital marketing and different things we could do. Um, my background with my family before coming here was we fed cattle and finished cattle. Mm. And so I'm familiar with it and I like it. Um, so it's always kind of in the back of my mind that we could do some more direct marketing than we have in, in the past yeah. and make it a thing. But it's not really that efficient. Like if we're spending our time doing that, then we have less time to do like the temporary fencing it mm. requires <laughs> to, right. to, uh, to make these small paddocks to yeah. intensively graze. We have uh, irrigation water to move with the hay. Um, it's really about all these individual ranches. If you have the human resources and the desire to connect with consumers that way, it's possible and can be beneficial. But, um, at this time, like it's probably not the best use of our energy when yeah. we do what we w do really well 
the feed yard that our our ca- our calves go to, they do what they do really well. Yeah. They get feed right from around Othello. Um, they get, you know, corn and hay and um, they get uh, grape pomace from, you know, the grape stuff. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. From wine. Um, from wine, from winemaking. And yeah. that that's all done closer to them than it is to us. Yeah. And so feeds kind of come into those animals and they do a great job. And we get the results back that, you know, we're hitting that choice and prime target consistently and we're providing that consistent product to typically the consumer mm-hmm. um, desire to have that at will at any grocery right. store they go to. So I'm, right. I'm very, I mean, interested in it, love to see it. I have a client that, you know, we launched a website in order to help them do more of that and mm-hmm. sold out an inventory of beef that we projected to last two months in two weeks. Wow. Um, I, we have a local beef directory on the beef commission website, wabeef.org. Um, there's a 400% increase in page views on this tool mm. where, pe- where people in Washington can um, do it, use a drop down by county and find people that we have listed there. These that are people, doing this. these friends of yours that just started going, trying to do some direct sales, they couldn't have picked a more perfect time to do it. Totally coincidental. It's a project we've been working on. I know they have been thinking about for a long, long time, and we had been working on for about a year to get it kind of just so and we're kind of ready to roll with that at this time and so i mean for their business and everything i think actually they'll be pretty successful consistently and it's there's some interest related to this and i can't deny it just based on everything else that i see but they're if anything this situation people who have considered buying directly from a rancher um, a lot of that usually involves buying more in bulk Mm -hmm. We can only raise, you know, there's only so many cuts per animal. Right. So it's not the same as shopping the meat case. I'd say that people... Where you just want the ribeyes. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, there's only so many ribeyes. So um, just, people have to think of it like going to shop their freezer yeah. for beef instead of going to the grocery store to shop it. And so it's a it's a shift. It's it's convenient. I think uh, most things, most foods... Um, new new food marketing has focused on convenience because people are busy like right. you run your life is run by work and activities and but um, covid is totally go. like messed with that because people now a lot home. of people aren't on the go <laughs> like baking bread <laughs> and they're seeing shortages in the grocery store and even if there is meat there it's maybe more expensive than it used to be and so then and like you're saying they're suddenly interested in hey maybe could i get this like straight from the farmer straight from the rancher and how would that work so it's totally turning a lot of those things on their head. Like maybe people will suddenly be, I guess we just don't know what's going to happen with COVID and, and how long this goes on and how much of our world continues to be turned upside down. But could this like be the moment for local food and for local meat? I or think regional even. It's having a moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, like I said, it's really cool to see some of those connections being made. Those seeds were already there for a lot of consumers. And this is like pushing them to take action and actually mm-hmm. buy from someone or do more in-depth research. And to- then once they have, they're like, hey, this wasn't actually so hard. Or like, I have a relationship now with this ranch. That's where I get our meat from and we like them. Yeah. When it's not really desirable. I mean, some of the consumer research that I've seen, you know, people are going to the grocery store multiple times a week. Obviously I can't relate. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I yeah, it's a bit of a drive we, from where you're at to here. the grocery store. So, uh, how I far is it, by the way? Uh, so there's a little grocery store in Ritzville. It takes about 40 minutes, but then to like a Safeway, Walmart, Costco, it's an hour. Everything's like an hour in any direction nice. you can think of. So, I don't have those habits, but I know looking at it, people typically are just sort of going in and out of the grocery store. Well, when you have to wear a mask and there's like arrows. It's very, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a little antsy because I don't go very often and I have to call my friend and be like, okay, so what are people doing? What's socially acceptable in the grocery <laughs> store right now? Because yeah. I don't know because I haven't been since this started. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, you're taking what was a convenient choice and kind of it's not so appealing anymore. And then here's another choice that maybe wasn't perceived as convenient, but maybe people will learn that it's really not as hard. That being said, you know, economically, there's still only a certain set of consumers that have the savings or have the room to buy in a way that works better for the rancher. You, right. Typically, to be efficient, you know, again, we're not selling one or two. What would happen if you just only sell individual cuts just from one ranch, say our size or maybe a little bit bigger than ours? You're going to run out of ribeyes. You're going to run out of tenderloins. You're going right. to end up sitting on these other products. And um, so I think I'd say... If, <laughs> If I had any messages, it would be like, learn to be a good customer to a rancher that you're working with and like, under, like let them lead you expectation wise on they're offering a box that they've decided on, or they're offering it by the half or the quarter or the whole it's for a reason. And it's because they need to be able to make a living off of this. Mm -hmm. um, so just learn what you can ask questions you know, and, and really listen and buy I, a freezer, get a freezer first, but I've heard there's well, been a run on freezers. Yeah, if you can find one, a lot of people have gotten freezers and you get me, you're talking about this whole convenience thing and people's, you know, money. There's been a big shift in that too. And, you know, I think we're all really worried that none of us are going to have very much money in coming months and years with the economic forecasts and really scary things like that. But at the same time, like the panic buying and the staying at home change people's priorities with that too, where it's like, Oh yeah, I need to spend more of at least the money that I do have right now on my food because suddenly like survival instinct comes back into play. So maybe I will spend some more money so I can get beef and good food at the store. Like all this panic buying was incredible. The things to watch what people bought was fascinating oh, to I me. Even, I still am puzzled by water and toilet paper. Well, it's not yeah, an earthquake. We'll, we'll never ever figure out the toilet paper one. <laughs> not an earthquake. Yeah. It's not a tsunami. It's not a natural disaster. Uh, no, I think um, I'm kind of of the mind that, and this is what kind of annoys me about, our food culture today and what I see kind of out there is that everyone wants to have an either or mm. mentality. Like this is a good way to buy beef and this is a bad way to buy beef. And I have to be able to track it back to the farm. And if I can't, then I don't trust it or something. Right. It's not, and that's not how people's actual buying habits end up taking place. Except then we all go to five guys or you know, whatever. Right. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not either or it's and. And so it's great that there's choices and then that, again, people are actually acting on some of those uh, choices, but hopefully also learning more about how we raise beef. So, you know, when people get really like uh, specific preferences, I want grass fed or finished only, or I right. want organic only or whatever. Right. But to me, I'm seeing a lot of these really, it's almost like a um, rushing to have a stance 
almost like you would a political position mm. um, on beef, on food, the types of food choices we make. But they don't know the difference between a cow and a steer and a bull mm. and a heifer. Uh, you know, I, I mean, in, in a lot of cases, they just don't have like the basic knowledge of how we raise cattle. And so to me, it's odd to like skip into... I have a, they have a stance, but they don't define have preference the... over what type of beef I have. But I don't really understand that cattle that are fed grain in a feed yard spent half their life on grass at a place mm-hmm. like this. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that back when we were talking about feeding cattle, and you know, we had Camus Ubelocker here on the podcast for two part two two weeks. I forget the numbers of the episodes, but you can go back and check in the list if you want to. Um, but that's what he does. Like you were describing, you have a cow calf operation, cattle literally out on the range. He takes them, finishes them as a custom operator, kind of specializes in what he does. And then they go to harvest. That's where they're fed corn. In a lot of cases, he talked a little bit about that. A lot of people say, Oh, well, corn is bad. I want all grass fed. You're explaining already that's more of a misnomer than maybe people realize, but explain more. What's going on with this whole grass-fed versus grain-fed? Yeah, it's just oversimplified, and I think some of our more oversimplified messages about food for people who are, they are, you know, they're trying to be conscientious for whether Mm -hmm. it's for their health or the environment or whatever it is they feel they care about. But at the end of the day, the actual knowledge of how to take, you know, a calf and get it up to a really palatable, really enjoyable beef product is um, it's not as simple as slapping a label on mm. this was grass finished or this was excuse me, usually it's grass fed or, or grain. Fed, and then people assume that everything else is grain fed, which means they're like force fed corn their whole lives or something, um, which is, never which is the not case. a thing. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was just looking at some stats the other day and it's the actual amount of corn in a cattle diet over the course of its life is way overstated or, you know, just sort of Mm -hmm. generalized as this really key element in it when really they're always fed some kind of um, roughage, you know, some kind of, um, uh, you know, hay is always in a ration. Uh, Camus did a great job of explaining what a, what a cattle feed ration is. And well, we've also heard from people who are saying, well, cows aren't, were, aren't designed to eat and digest corn. That's not a thing. In fact, so most of the corn that they're fed is there's, there's dry steam flake corn. So that's also already been processed. You know, think of corn flakes like we eat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have um, most of the corn they eat is like siled and it's chopped the entire plant. Corn is a type of grass technically. Um, mm-hmm. So to say that ruminant animals can't digest and process and convert a crop like corn into beef efficiently is just scientifically false. It's not a thing. People also say, aside from, you know, the sustainability, con- you know, conversation, environmental concerns, et cetera, et cetera, they say that grass-fed beef has, what is it, like more omega-3 fatty acids or something like that. I, correct me if I'm wrong on the specifics it's, there. Yeah, the fatty is acid the, ratio. Yeah, is the beef actually different? I mean, I, I have a cousin and her husband, they're both nutritionists and i talked with them about it and they're like yeah omega-3s are super trendy right now but you don't need too many of those and omega-6 is kind of like whoa it's bad it's from corn but you don't need too many of those but you can't live without any of this like it's way more complicated once they started explaining it right so to simplify it but not oversimplify it 
the fatty acid ratio. So it's that six to three ratio is what is usually referred to um, is so slightly different between grain mm. finished and grass finished beef. It's marginal, first of all. Yeah. Um, again, the intramuscular fat that we're talking about actually has a similar fatty acid profile to like olive oil, which would be considered mm. like a healthy fat, which right. is something people don't really realize. Mm. Um, but then, I did not know but that. But then further, because I feel like now I've gone down this rabbit trail, but it needs to be addressed that um, the beef people are never going to say like, get your omegas from beef because it's not, the, beef is a, essential i mean it has essential nutrients and it's a great source for several you know proteins zinc iron are the top three right but there's actually quite a few um the omegas aren't in there um it's not uh go eat salmon <laughs> go get a cup river salmon yeah um you know use an actual significant source to get your omegas that's interesting you said copper river salmon i have a good friend who's a lifetime fisherman he's like oh, the whole copper river thing that's just marketing for, man it's all marketing it's genius marketing which you know we we're saying about you know you're yeah. talking about beef and i could tell you marketing things about other crops and stuff that it's what is really underneath it and when you talk to the farmer they're like yeah you get a whole different story that's why i'm doing no, this podcast to I talk to the farmers rather than the marketing people i like i literally you know it's to the point or you just, I literally assume when I'm seeing or reading something about an industry that I'm for unfamiliar with, just, and it feels simplified or oversimplified. I'm just like, yeah, if I want to know more about this, I need to go read some more because that's, I have a feeling that this is meant to sell me something. Yeah. That's our generation though too, right? Oh, just being skeptical or yeah, just being yeah. marketed to by people who try to make you dumber? Oh, both. <laughs> Both. I do. I think of, so I, I do fill some marketing roles in my work and I, I kind of keep that mantra of, I, I don't want to make people dumber. Like if I do anything mm -hmm. with, with this work, it's to shed some light on areas of, uh, you know, the process of getting food to people. Are you telling me you do marketing yet you still have a soul? I am a soulful marketer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, that's good. I started, I mean, I really started out my career more in advocacy and more like, mm. I'm just more of a, like, I was like a nerdy kid that listened to, um, you know, I grew up on the West side case, okay, so but we had a feed yard and a family ranch, right? We actually, we raised hay. We um, had, I think my first job in life was to um, sell corn, sweet corn mm. that we grew, pick it and sell it on the roadside. Where was this? Uh, uh, in the Green River Valley, Auburn okay. and Kent. Yeah. Um, so my grandparents and my parents and my brother and I, you know, kind of all worked together since I was a little kid. And um, so that's a really urban market even back yeah. in the 90s. So it's kind of second nature to me to be communicating to people who don't have a firsthand understanding of like yeah. farming and ranching um, because I was doing it since birth. Um, but it makes me want to help people understand um, and uh, yeah, just have been attracted and have had the opportunity to do work that's allowed me to continue that. So how did you end up here in Eastern Washington and on a cow-calf operation, but also doing digital marketing work and all kinds of stuff online? And like, what was the road from there to here? Winding. Yeah. <laughs> Windy. Uh, yeah. So I grew up on a farm and, you know, feed yard family operation um, on the west side I, I was probably influenced by, you know, obviously at that time, ag wasn't like a growing 
industry over mm-hmm. there. Um, I, again, the, the dinner table conversations and just sort of the activity around the farm. Um, I was really aware of like regulatory framework that was growing, whether it was, you know, uh, water issues or, you know, endangered species act issues, whatever it was, uh, you know, Seattle area is like the epicenter. I feel like mm-hmm. everything else, as far as like our environmental mm-hmm. culture right now, it's just catching up to like kind of where things were, you know, a decade or two ago in the Seattle area as culturally. Right. So I paid attention to that as a little kid. I ended up at WSU, go Cougs. Um, and, um, I had been really, um, encouraged in writing. Um, and so, uh, based on sort of not knowing if I had this role in production agriculture going forward and being kind of, um, you know, encouraged in other ways, I ended up with a poli-sci pre-law degree because I thought maybe I could be an attorney and like go fight the good fight for farmers or something, wow. right? I wasn't sure where it would go. And then um, I did some campaign work and some like rabble rouse, like conservative or Republican rabble rousing on campus. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, it begat campaign jobs that begat uh, appointment in the Bush administration. Oh, so really? I went from Pullman, basically straight from Pullman to D.C., um, as a young 20 something. And so I got to spend a few years out back East where you can get a lot of, um, experience in a short amount of time. So what kind of stuff were you doing back East? So my first job back there was, um, I didn't even know when I started, you know, helping campaign, volunteering for campaigns and then getting like staff campaign jobs. I got to run around Eastern Washington, which was really cool. That was my territory. Um, and so I love it. I already knew I loved it out here. Um, but I didn't even know there was like low level appointments that you could get from, you know, supporting the, you know, the president in this case was President Bush's reelection in 2004. Um, and so other people I worked with were like, yeah, no, put your, you know, give, give us your resume. And, and so I started out at the most boring federal agency. I don't know if you can guess which one. The GSA, the General Services Administration. Mm-hmm. We buy mm-hmm. pencils and bombs. Uh, <laughs> I worked for the chief of staff there, and um, I didn't. Government pr- procurement was like not <laughs> like my thing. Uh, so uh, I actually my um, my boss out here on the campaign had ended up landing a job in the political affairs office for the they kind of staff up during the cycle. So during the mm-hmm. 2006 cycle, I was his, uh, what they call desk coordinator mm. where I just wrote briefing papers, um, for any time, like the president or vice president or first lady, whoever was traveling, we'd have to sort of update these, um, briefing documents that they would presumably read on their so way. So you were writing stuff that the president was reading? So I wouldn't go that far cause I can't, I was never on like air force one to confirm that. Yeah. Uh, my, my boss was. And so sometimes he'd have some stories to come back to, but I will say I had a weird experience where I was in my office there. It's in the Eisenhower, the EEOB building yeah. next door to the West wing. Yeah. And I'm there like doing my thing at my desk and they, the TV was on and it was a live feed of, uh, I think it was a rally in Montana. And that was in my territory that right. I had to cover for my work. And the president's giving his remarks. And I'm like, man, that sounds familiar. <laughs> and I still had like the document because the speech writers, they didn't always ask us, but sometimes they'd yeah. ask us for bullet points to incorporate. And so I was feeling pretty high on life to so hear the your president. your briefing document probably made it to the speech writer who worked some no, of No, we actually words. did talking points sometimes. So okay. these were actually talking points that the speech writers asked for in addition to our typical yeah. briefing papers. I do know that Carl Rove, actually read them because one time 
this is where I also almost died uh, and fell over on the floor because um, there was like a weird anomaly in one of the Montana counties. And Carl's going through this briefing paper and we put historical election results in it. And he thought it was wrong. Because it was like a weird flip on like yeah. whatever the congressional district results was. And so my boss is calling me because he's traveling with Carl Rove. They've just flew commercial and stuff like he wasn't on Air Force One or anything. But he's calling me from the road being like, you need to look at these numbers and check them. And I was like, oh, my God, did I just like get that wrong? <laughs> uh, freaking out. And then luckily it was correct. Um, but that was like weird. I mean, it's just like I found myself in some weird spaces. <laughs> um and again, just getting just great experience to then, um, I always say like some of the stuff I did out there was pretty intense. And again, like if people like that are reading something you're writing, um, it needs to be accurate. It needs to be, you know, uh, a certain degree if it's going to be out in public. Um, it may, it's made other things that I've done that maybe are a little bit stressful or pressure, pressureful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good word. I mean, I'll keep that one if that's it's okay. It's not as, it doesn't, not that many things seem that hard after that. Yeah. Fast forward, I'm trying to like work with kids and also now be a <laughs> homeschool mom. Like I am humbled. I am, I don't care what I've done in the past. I yeah. am supremely humbled by trying to manage this household and everything we do at the ranch and, and my business and stuff. Um, but it's been weird. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, to ki- continue on this road though, to back up a little bit, like, I know from hearing from a lot of people like, oh, the Holy Grail is to make it back to D.C. for a lot of different things that people do. And then once people are out there, they're like, I hate this city. I hate this, how everything works in this town and how people are so fake and yada, yada. I just want to get back home. And so how did you extricate yourself from that world? Sure. And end up back here. I went out without an exit plan. I really wasn't sure. I was 22 maybe when I landed out there Mm. and I, I have a little bit different perspective. I probably didn't stay out there long enough to be completely jaded. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's part of it, but I really do. I think I, I bet I met and worked with some of the best people that you'll ever meet and some of the worst people. And that's, that's universal. (laughs) I feel like, so it's not like the people are worse. I guess I'll put it this way. Um, I can't be that jaded because I got my hands on some like cool stuff. as a very young person with just really like the best intentions to just, you know, I'm not going to sit back and complain about things. I'm going to get in there and, you know, kind of put my energy in, in places. Um, so I feel like I thrived pretty well. I sold my pickup and like flew out there with a couple of suitcases. (laughs) I mean, I really, I kind of just wholesale, I lived on Capitol Hill. Um, after that, uh, stint, in 2006 at the white house, I ended up getting a job at a firm that is based in Bellevue. Washington advocates is what Mm. it's still called. The principals there worked for Slade Gorton, Senator Slade Gorton. Um, so they were awesome people to work with. And then that set of clients that we did public affairs work, basically we're lobbyists. Um, but we, um, worked with dirt and water clients. So I started at that point, I started kind of like finding my way back home to agriculture, at least working on agriculture issues. Um, they represented, you know, the PUDs that, that, uh, run our hydropower dams, Chelan County PUD, those kind of things. I got, got sort of getting sharp on those types of issues that are really important here in Washington. Um, warehouser, um, at the time there was a big um, conflict with the tribes and the shellfish growers. And so shellfish growers are farmers. 
you know, and I don't mm-hmm. think I probably ever really thought about it like that when I was younger, but I was like, man, these are farmers and they have all these like similar issues, but it's shellfish. Um, and so I got to work on cool projects that directly related back to agriculture and the Pacific Northwest based on the the people that worked for, the, uh, that this company worked for. And then I kind of got poached from there back to Dino Rossi's gubernatorial campaign mm. in 2008. And that's how I ended up back in Washington. Not sure if I would stay after doing a, you know, eight month campaign stint, but mm. um, I got a master's degree in there somewhere. I don't like, I don't. You've been busy. I don't know. I'd like, I wasn't as tired as I am now. <laughs> Is that weird? <laughs> like, I feel like, man, I, I guess the I feeling. like, I pe- you know, know it, you feeling. get it. I packed a lot in during that sort of like time in my twenties and ended up back in Washington. And then after that campaign lost, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, this happens and you need a new job or even when you win, you need a new job. Um, so from there I ended up, uh, working for Reagan Dunn on the King County council. Mm -hmm. So I worked downtown Seattle, um, in the courthouse and I did agriculture land use and communications for him. So I started finding my way into this, sort of like jobs I didn't know existed when I was even in college and this direction that while I had sort of just been taking great opportunities that presented themselves to me through networking and uh, just where, where I was being led, I did stop at one point. I was like, Oh, I guess I am doing what I really probably as a young person thought I could be useful doing. And then my parents were still farming in that area. So I would just on the weekends, I was at their place. Um, And, uh, but yeah, I I was probably figured out that I was like the only person on the 12th floor of the King County courthouse, you know, involved in policymaking um, for the council that had any agricultural background whatsoever. Mm. So I felt the need to like get in there and make sure that some of those interests were, were being represented. And, and then again, these, these issues that can be oversimplified, um, you know, walked back and explained. So then how did you end up in Eastern Washington? So I worked, we, we got you all the way to DC and then all the way back to we're Seattle. Back. Sorry, and now we've got to get story. you. To, I don't want no, to no, story. this is, you said lots of twists and turns. It's, so I wanted to hear them. It's yeah, it's interesting. And so I find it interesting when I stop, I don't often stop and think about it. Uh, nobody has time for that. But, uh, after working for Reagan, um, uh, Patty over at the beef commission dialed me up and she was looking for someone in like in that consumer information space that um, at that time, the beef commission board had said, Hey, we want to really invest in telling the production side. Like they're seeing that people have more interest in how food's raised, Mm -hmm. but like the knowledge gap is really vast. And then we're getting all these sort of negative myths developing around how we raise cattle. And um, so that's why I was attracted to it. I mean, I like cooking beef. Like I, I love eating and cooking beef, um, uh, but I didn't really, I wasn't attracted to the job to like teach people how to make chili with five ingredients or, <laughs> I mean, I do, yeah. I will say like searing, I love smoking my Traeger, you know, I mean, there's some cool stuff to do with me. Yeah. It's one of my hobbies, but I really was like, this is an opportunity to take things like so full circle yeah. back to the industry that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, and do that communication work that needed clearly needed to be done and still needs to be done today. And so that was like 2010. And um, I just sort of, right after I started that job, um, coincidentally met my now husband mm. 
who's a rancher. <laughs> was he already doing that at that time? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. So, um, so his dad, how did this work? So it's like literally the second or third day on the job was like the cattlemen's, the Washington cattlemen's convention. It was over in Sincadia. And you know, it's one of those instances where you're the new person mm. and you, you know, everyone meets you, but you don't necessarily meet everyone. Mm-hmm. And I had had some interaction with, uh, Dick Kuhn, my now father-in-law, because one of my first projects that first week was um, reviewing some um, some ads, some radio ads mm-hmm. that he had voiced. And mm-hmm. then also there was some copy and they'd spelled Benj where we are now. They spelled it wrong. And I knew that because I'd been traveling 26 past the sign of Benj <laughs> to, to WSU, to Pullman and all those years before. And now you live in Benj. here I am. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I'd had just a light interaction with with Dick and... Um, I didn't know what was going on yet. I was just trying to get with my job. I mean, yeah, that's the zone yeah. I'd been in for, you know, at that point, you know, since college. Yeah. And and uh, so <laughs> I don't know if I should go into this. You can cut it out. <laughs> but it's kind of funny. Um, Th- this means it's about to be the best part of the interview. Now, when people say that, you know something good is coming. So, so now you my, must carry my, on now. So it's funny. It's, everyone finds it's kind of hilarious. And I still find it a little bit hilarious. My So my now family... <laughs> My in-laws were all there at the convention. And um, my now brother-in-law, um, my my now husband was on the way and he mm-hmm. was just joining everyone. And apparently my now brother-in-law kind of like saw me in the hallway and didn't know anything about me mm-hmm. yet, right? But he's texting him like, you need to get here and you need to like maybe meet this person. You know, <laughs> so uh, this is all happening. I have no idea this is happening. Yeah. Um he gets there. Um, the so the beef commission meeting is going on. This is my first board meeting, and I'm like pretty like trying to figure out what I'm doing here. Zoned in on Zoned the work, in. yeah. And um, these two dudes come in to the meeting, and I remember Patty leaning over to me and saying, "Who are those guys?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I just started because just like to know who's yeah. in the meetings." Uh, so I had no, I had no idea. Um, never met him. And then fast forward to January, so that was November, January, a few months later. Um, there's a program up that WSU did and it was for, you know, everyone from a rancher to a feed yard, um, employee to a packer. It's like this cool course about beef, everything from like genetics and like range management to, you know, we made sausage and we, you know, looked at grading the ribeyes that, that the yeah. grade, anyway, it's just it's like a, beef boot camp. Beef boot camp. That's not what they called it, but they should have. Um, <laughs> anyway, so last minute. I didn't even plan on the alliteration for that. So but, much yeah. alliteration. Yeah. So good. That's so awesome. So anyway, my <laughs> father-in-law and my now husband kind of last minute decided, because they were like an hour from Pullman here, um, mm-hmm. decided to join as attendees. And then the Beef Commission had sponsored to a degree. And so I was kind of sent over to uh, write it up and, you know, do do some promotion after the fact. And so, um, you know, still really new. And I'm like, oh, everyone's just so nice, uh, you know, but really like he was talking me up. He was chatting me up the whole the whole two or three days that this Wait thing a was second. going on. So he just happened to decide to go to this boot, oh, the I, beef boot camp. I didn't even know I was going until like a few days before because we weren't, you know, it was kind of not okay. essential. So he wasn't... There was... So that part, there was no stocking. There was like no okay. stock. It was actually okay. completely... So what's funny is like he didn't... He didn't shoot a, <laughs> shoot a shot <laughs> in November and I didn't yeah. know he existed. Yeah. And then in January, you know, here we are again... You know, and, you know, these circles are small uh, in an industry mm-hmm. like ours. So not to say that it's completely out of the blue, but it was not. You know, it was just sort of a, a coincidence. And he, yeah, like by the end of the week, he's like, hey, 
can I call you sometime or maybe come visit? Cause I lived on, I lived in on the West side. I lived yeah. in Auburn. And, um, so anyway, I finally let him come visit me like in February and then he, <laughs> you, you say that. So you let him, I wasn't, come I was in the zone. I was in the career zone, man. I was not thinking about this. Everybody talks about friend zone, but this is, <laughs> is this a step even farther than friend zone? No, no. It was just, there was a lot was of text career, messages. Like if you, you were to- You career zoned him. Kind, well, I, I didn't, obviously. <laughs> this is why. So then things got really, things got real. Things got real so fast. Uh, anyway, so finally, I think he came over for like Super Bowl weekend or something. And I made him go to a hockey game with like 20 of my friends and family. Because I'm like that person, like the, the facilita facilitator of fun. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. like yeah. in the family, like that's kind of my role. And so it's like, let's go to a hockey game, but let's get a group rate and like get yeah. t-shirts or whatever. Um, so I put him through the paces. We like had to go shop by the, stop by the beauty shop and like meet my grandma. And like, it was a whole <laughs> thing, um, but he was undeterred. And so that was like the beginning of February by, he proposed on Mother's Day that year. So that's Holy how I can remember smokes. it. So that was May. And then we're just kind of going with it. We're just like sending it is is the only way I can describe it. And so that this was This whole thing was moving along rather slowly until you suddenly said you were, you first actually really hung out in February or like dated, whatever you want to call it. And you were engaged to him by Mother's Day. He was highly intentional, which I hear is I not guess. really a quality uh, of millennial <laughs> dudes these no, days. No. But he was... He's all on board. And so we're engaged in May and then we got married October 1st. Wow. So I actually didn't, I didn't know what would become of like my job mm -hmm. and which is, you know, not the greatest feeling to me because I really did. I really care about this type of work and it was really, things are going in this direction. And so it was really Patty, uh, my boss that got creative and um, I had been doing a lot, obviously a lot more of our work is done online. Yeah can do it from anywhere. Um, and so we were able to sort of do a lot of different gyrations with that job that allowed me to stay doing it to a degree. Um, like I said, I was pregnant 2.6 seconds after we got married. In fact, I, we, I didn't even live here yet. But, so essentially we got married October 1st. Um, December 1st was when I moved here. And even then I had some event swing, you know, that, yeah. that week. And, in between that time, it was like Thanksgiving and I was like, okay, I, I think something's up. <laughs> and he like came over for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so we got to tell my grandma, like we said, I think we announced it. Like, uh, we were thankful you're going around like what you're thankful for. And, uh, we, I said, we're thankful for fertility. <laughs> and my grandmother, who's like 90 years old at the time, she I mean, her right eyes away. got so big. It's just like one of those best moments yeah. that, um, you know, she's she's passed now. And so I just have some of these great moments to be, she was involved in and got to, you know, hold our, our son. Um, but we got to do this sort of announcement on Thanksgiving. That's um, so awesome. But I had like, you know, I thought it would be a long winter at least you know, on the ranch. <laughs> um, so it was really like, oh, I should probably like get doctors. And, you know, it was just, oh, man. so life has been pretty and, fast In less than a year's time, that was a lot of stuff. That's a lot. But I kind of, change has never really bothered me. Um, and I kind of always wondered where I would land in mm -hmm. life, probably because of that, because I was never like, I want to be an accountant and right. I will do this. And, you know, and 
I tried to be really open-minded about having like a suburban life or an urban life. And, um, it's just none, none of that ever took. <laughs> um, so in some cases it seems like kind of crazy to be out here, but really to me, it's like, feels right. Um, you know, living next door to family, you know, we, we had that type of setup growing up. Um, and so to have my grand, have my kids, you know, see their grandparents, their great grandmother lives next door here. We were just planting vegetables and seeds in the garden the other day. And, uh, so I go from like, Hey, I need to focus on explaining to people why our processing plants are slowed down and there's like space in the meat case in a situation like this and work on those tougher issues. And then I'm like, let's go plant some vegetables in the garden with Nana because I mean, we need to do these things we need and we have this ability to do it here. So I really couldn't be more thrilled at how things kind of have shaken out. And we've, my husband and I have these conversations sometimes, um, even like after really hard days or just sucky days (laughs) where things just go wrong and they can go wrong with your kids. They can go wrong with my work. They can go wrong with the ranch and like some days can be pretty rough. And, um, like, I don't know if it's just like scenic out here or what, but like, there's just, there's been more than, uh, more than a few times where we've stopped and been like, yeah, I don't really care. I feel like this is where I would want to be. And so you can't really deny that feeling. And so I'm kind (laughs) of, I've kind of just started going with it, you know, several years ago and, and it's, only grown it hasn't sort of so luckily like really (laughs) short-term decisions um have worked out this is the real food real people podcast these are the stories of the people who grow your food this is the part where i say but wait there's more. That's just part one of the conversation. And she shares so much more of her story and insight into food and farming and ranching and what's going on in the world. Uh, Bridget Kuhn part two is next week. So make sure to stay tuned for that. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Um, people keep asking me, well, where can we find your podcast? Pretty much on any of the podcast platforms out there. And I have been mentioning to people, and I'll say this to you as well, if there is a platform that I'm not on that you think I should be, send me a message. Dylan at realfoodrealpeople.org is my email address, right to my phone. I'll see it right away. And I'll figure out if there's any way to get on that platform, we'll do it. Also, at rfrp underscore podcast on instagram and real food real people podcast on facebook don't forget to follow us there Uh, what is it at rfrp underscore podcast as well on twitter so make sure to connect with us there and continue to follow along as i travel all over washington state to meet and really get to know the people behind our food the real food real people podcast is sponsored in part by save family farming giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.